Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. For the past few years, the country's been in a fractious debate over the appropriateness of numerous public monuments and statues. Which should stay, which should go, and who gets to decide? In this episode, you'll hear from Erin Thompson, who's both a lawyer and a professor of art crime. She's published a new book titled Smashing Statues, The Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments, where she uses the history behind some well-known statues as context for today's arguments over their fates. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Aaron Thompson, you have a new book out titled Smashing Statues, The Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments. What will readers find in your book? I hope they'll find the stories that are often hidden beneath the placid surfaces of our monuments. And these are stories we need to think about in a time where we're considering not just the future of America's public spaces, what they look like, but the future of America itself. Your biography lists you as the country's only professor of art crime, and you're also a lawyer. So were those two specialties logically what brought you to examining this topic? Yes, so I like school too much, so I got a PhD in art history and then a JD. And I'm interested in all sorts of intersections between art and crime. So uh, street art, uh, the looting and smuggling of antiquities, museum security, etc., Uh, But I think these expertises really led to me writing the book because I realized you can't understand current debates over public monuments without understanding both the art historical reasons why they are where they are, why they look like what they look like, but you also can't understand their fate without seeing how the laws we have to preserve and protect monuments are being put into play. The current... uh examination of and in many cases toppling of statues that some communities found offensive really it's about five six years old can you walk us through what was happening in society that led to the protests that really rose to a crescendo in the summer of 2020 right so american public monuments have stood pretty much unchallenged for a long time now. Uh, Actually, Americans toppled the very first equestrian public monument we got. In 1770, New Yorkers put up a statue of King George III, and that only lasted for about seven years um, before uh, soldiers in the the new army heard the Declaration of of Independence read aloud and then pulled it down. Uh, But since George III, we've sort of calmed down on on keeping statues um, up or down. Uh, But these issues came to a head again in 2015 uh, and then again in 2017 with uh, killings of, uh, in the case of 2015, by Dylan Roof of parishioners in Charleston and then the deadly Unite the Right rally in 2017. And both of those instances brought into focus the use of uh, 
especially Confederate monuments, to embolden um, people committed to a white supremacist worldview. So there's a lot of debate about what monuments we should have in public. Should we take down Confederate monuments? Should we take down Confederate flags, et cetera? Um, these debates seemed like a big deal at the time, but really were nothing compared to the summer of 2020, when after the death of George Floyd, uh, millions of Americans marched uh, to protest uh, racial disparities, uh, to say that Black Lives Matter, and uh, often these rallies focused on monuments as a symbolic meeting point for showing who was honored in America, whose lives mattered, um, and whose lives did not. So since the summer of 2020, about 214 figural public monuments have come down. Uh, but I want to emphasize that 80% of those came down through official actions, through local officials saying, we're going to take this statue off its pedestal and either relocate it to somewhere a little less prominent, like a graveyard or a historic battle site, or we're going to put it in storage and decide what we're going to do about it later. So you see these news clips, you think all of these monuments came down from, from people sort of tugging at them with ropes, uh, but really it has been much more of an official process, usually. I, I do have a clip from the summer of 2020 from Tucker Carlson, because this issue really became uh, a touch point in the 2020 presidential election and uh, motions on both sides. Let's watch that and I'll come back to you. Across the country, mobs are tearing down America's monuments. In the cities of Richmond and St. Paul, Minnesota, they've torn down statues of Christopher Columbus. They did the same thing in Boston. Boston's mayor now says it's time to remove a statue of Abraham Lincoln, the man who freed the slaves. It's racist. In Dallas, they pulled a Texas Ranger statue out of the airport after more than 50 years. In Dearborn, Michigan, they toppled a statue of the former mayor. They did the same thing in Philadelphia. In Nashville, they pulled down a statue of a former Amer U.S. senator. Same in Albany. In Oregon, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington were torn down. In San Francisco, the mob demolished statues of Ulysses S. Grant, Junipero Serra, and Francis Scott Key. On the pedestal of the Key Monument, they spray-painted, Kill the Colonizers and Kill Whitey, just in case you missed the point. One thing all of these Americans, now canceled, have in common, not one of them fought for the Confederacy. Pulling down their statues had nothing to do with the Civil War, at least not the first Civil War, the one that took place 150 years ago. Aaron Thompson, what's your reaction to listening to that report? I have a lot of reactions to that. Uh, but first, I want to say that for the book, one of the chapters is based on a long interview I did with Mike Forcha, the indigenous activist in the Twin Cities, who took full responsibility for organizing the toppling of uh, the statue of Columbus in the Minnesota State Capitol grounds. And he explained to me that he had for literally decades uh, tried to have the statue removed or questioned or some signage added. Uh, he was assured that there was a process through which he could file petitions, the petitions would be heard. But shortly after the the statue came down, the Minnesota government admitted that there really was never any process for those petitions to be heard. So it's not surprising to me that if people have no hope that their voices will be heard, that their objections to what is, after all, their shared public space 
uh, will be listened to that you're going to see acts of civil disobedience. And I don't think that there should be violent topplings of statues. I do think that there need to be ways for these objections to be heard. And what we've seen alongside the removal of many statues in the last uh, few years is also an attempt in many state legislatures to strengthen the protections for such statues, to make it harder for them to be removed officially, to make the penalties for pulling them down greater. So we're at a real crossroads. Can we as a country have these discussions about how we want to represent ourselves or are statues going to be nailed to their pedestals by the people currently in control of state legislatures? We'll have a chance in our hour to dig into a couple more of those topics. But um, I guess this is an obvious question, but let me ask it. Why are there so many emotions around uh, objects made of stone? Right. It seems strange sometimes, like like only pigeons cared about these things before, and now suddenly people are, are willing to fight over them, are willing to die or kill to, to take them down or protect them. Uh, but if you think about the role that art plays in human life, it's not surprising. So we learn to love, to hate, to be with each other through images. We perceive the world through images far before we do through um, understanding speech or reading. Uh, They tap into just a very different part of the brain than does uh, text. So monuments are designed to arouse emotions. Think of how often, for example, Uh, something is celebrated by an anonymous, beautiful body. You have an an allegorical figure representing the ideals of the Confederacy or the uh, ideals of America as a whole. You're supposed to be attracted to that body. You're supposed to think, oh, beautiful equals good. Um, But just like beautiful people, beautiful monuments can hide a lot more complex uh, realities underneath that surface. What is your response? And we heard Tucker Carlson use the phrase cancel culture in the report that we saw. So what is your response to people who say taking down memorials is canceling part of our history? Right. There's a lot of people who worry that to take down a monument is to erase history. But it's not because monuments are not history lessons. Monuments show this very partial, very careful, very narrow view of history. You can think of statues as selfies of the nation. They are showing history from the very best angles without any of the complexities or the pain. They're telling us who to honor. They're not telling us facts about the past. So to remove a monument is to remove a form of honor, but it's not to entirely erase history. Does removing statues change our society? Yes and no, because one thing, one story I tell in the book is about a community in New Jersey who protested the removal of a monument of Columbus after they had been asking for it, uh, its removal for decades. And what they wanted was it for it not just to disappear. Um, they wanted to have a, a rally, a parade to sort of celebrate this removal to make public the reasons why they thought that Columbus was a a problematic figure. They didn't just want it to disappear, so they ended up sort of camping out in front of the truck that was coming to take it away for a couple of days until they could have 
the parade they had planned. So taking away a monument without having a conversation about why it went up and what sort of view of America that monument insubstantiated is really worse than useless. So in some ways it's frustrating to me that the process of removal is being slowed down by lawsuits, by new laws, um, by all sorts of debate. Um, but on, on the other hand, it, it's a good way to get out into public our discussion about who we want uh, to see in our public spaces. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. While we're talking about the emotions surrounding this debate, you write in your acknowledgments that you had to learn to deal with waves of negative reactions directed at you. Uh, what was that experience like and were you surprised? I was a little surprised at... Uh, people thinking that I could control the fate of monuments. Uh, Tucker Carlson, for example, said I was leading armies of nihilists. And I'm thinking, you know, the only nihilists I know are my children and they don't even listen to me about bath time. So <laughs> I, I'm not uh, the mastermind of statue removal that Mr. Carlson uh, apparently had in mind. Um, but no, I, I, I was glad that my thoughts on statue removal got so much public attention, even negative attention, because that, those arguments that people were having about my point of view showed me, okay, this is what I need to address in my book. This is what people believe. This is the, the gaps in understanding that I think I can fill in. And although you know, I'm not the czar of monuments. My book is not giving you a list of which ones I think should stay and which ones should go. But I, I knew the types of information that I think people need to, to fill into their understanding to make these types of decisions. So that's what I tried to, to write about. So many, but not all, of the contested statues have been Confederate war memorials. And in the book, you tell people more about the history of these memorials. Walk me through that. You say it was very different the first 20 years after the war uh, than to the next 40 or so. Walk me through that. Right. So we think of Confederate memorials as something immediately celebrating the war. But in fact, for the first couple of decades after the close of the Civil War, there are relatively few Confederate monuments that went up. They almost all went up in graveyards and had mourning imagery, um, not warlike, not soldiers, but uh, they were more personal monuments to, for people who had lost members of their family. But then in the turn of the century period, those monuments start to move out of graveyards into the public sphere and start to become much more militaristic, um, featuring generals, portraits of, of Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, um, but much more often featuring um, a portrait of an unnamed low-ranking soldier standing at attention in a posture known as parade rest. And these were meant to be seen by all, were in front of courthouses or post offices or in the, the town square. 
and mirrored in the north two similar um, Civil War memorials from the Union side, which are often indistinguishable in, in posture except for little details of the uniform. And one of the things that people often say about these monuments when they're supporting keeping them there is that they're about heritage, not hate. Um, they are not trying to oppress anyone. They're just celebrating um, the people who fought in the Civil War, whether they did so um, sort of tragically or just following orders, et cetera, et cetera. And I started to wonder uh, if this was true, what exactly these statues were celebrating, because it seemed strange to me. You know, if you wanted to honor a low-ranking soldier, you could maybe show his, his courage charging into battle, or you could show his sacrifice, sort of wounded or, or dying. But why all these very stiff monuments just showing a soldier standing there? And I looked into contemporary military manuals and found that this posture of parade rest was assumed by soldiers during training. They were supposed to stand there without moving, without talking, in this position in order to receive instruction from drill instructors. Uh, they were standing there uh, to demonstrate their obedience to their betters. And I found that when these statues went up in the turn of the century, in the first um, decade or so of the 20th century, uh, they were often paid for by people who very much wanted to be obeyed by the descendants of these low-ranking soldiers, by factory owners, mine owners, other white-collar entrepreneurs who uh, employed a lot of people. And uh, you can read in the newspapers these very full reports of the dedication speeches for these monuments, uh, which talk about these, these factory owners praising the obedience of Confederate soldiers, saying that their glory was their duty, was their sacrifice, was their making themselves a cog in the wheel, as Julian Shakespeare Carr of Carborough, North Carolina, uh, said of a monument that he helped fundraise for. And then I started to wonder, all right, why all of these factory owners praising obedience uh, I started to read more in those newspapers what else is going on at the time that these monuments are going up and discovered that, oh, they often go up at the same time that there is labor unrest in a community. And often that, that unionization effort, the efforts to be paid a fair wage, uh, are interracial unionization efforts. So a lot of these Confederate monuments went up at a time when factory owners um, were very concerned to break interracial organization among their workers. And so they're essentially uh, an appeal to Confederate heritage to say what your duty is, uh, is to support the race lines your ancestors uh, died trying to uphold rather than work together to um, improve your lives in the present with a living wage. And this is the kind of thing that I'm trying to do in the book, is, is dig into history to show what are the, the real motivations behind these statues. Why would Confederate, excuse me, why would Civil War monuments be going up in the northern part of the country at the same time? So these monuments uh, 
for Union monuments are more often um, closer to the actual conflict uh, in the later 19th century. Uh, and what's interesting about those monuments is who is represented as fighting. So about 80% of northern black men between 15 and 50 served in the Union Army, along with a relatively astounding uh, around 17% um, of southern black men who escaped from slavery and then volunteered to go back to, to fight for the freedom uh, of others. And so despite this very large presence of black soldiers in the Union Army, um, there are only a few representations in 19th and early 20th century uh, public monuments of uh, black soldiers fighting. And it's most often a, a white soldier, uh, either low ranking or a portrait of a general. Uh, often you see on these monuments in the North, uh, Confederate and Union generals or, or officers shaking hands, reconciling. Um, so I think there is a real way in which both Confederate monuments in the South and Union monuments in the North are trying to make a public argument about who should hold power in America after the Civil War, um, trying to, in a way, yank back this promise of equality from the Emancipation Proclamation and say that uh, although black people fought for their own freedom, they weren't really going to... Um, deserve to have full equality in the political and social life uh, of the country, that they could just sort of stay there having received freedom as a gift instead of having, as they did in reality, fought for it. Your book is divided into two sections, the rising and the fall of statues. But in the introduction, you go back farther in time and deal with one of the most iconic statues in the country, and that's the Statue of Freedom. It's called On the Top of the United States statue, uh, Capitol. Freedom's origin story involves Jefferson Davis, maybe a surprise to people, and then two people named Philip Reed and Clark Mills. What is important to know about Freedom's origins? So freedom is uh, an allegory of liberty that went up to top the Capitol Dome in 1863, um, but it had been underway for a long time before that. And the statue was first designed by a sculptor uh, who was, whose boss was Jefferson Davis. So the future president of the Confederacy was at that time the Secretary of War and was in charge of decorations for the Capitol building. And the sculptor, Thomas Crawford, gave him a sketch um, to say this is what I think this sculpture should look like. And Jefferson Davis objected to the hat being worn by this woman symbolizing freedom um, because the hat was known as the Liberty Cap. It's sort of got a... a slouchy cat with a sort of bulb on top. Um, it's been known as a symbol for liberty since uh, ancient Rome because the Romans would give that type of hat to newly freed slaves. And Jefferson said, no, 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 no. This type of freedom is not appropriate for America. Um, he wanted the sculpture of freedom to celebrate the lives of those who had always been free, who had been born free. 
Why? Well, he was someone who was fiercely defending the institution of slavery in America and did not want anybody, especially anyone looking at official federal art, to think about the possibility of emancipation, the possibility that people then enslaved could one day become free. So the artist changed the headgear. If you go today, you'll see that Freedom is wearing, a, it looks like a sort of unfortunately treated eagle has been plopped on top of her head and it's got stars and, and feathers all shooting off like a Vegas showgirl. Uh, and that artist, Crawford, made a model in plaster and then the federal government hired another sculptor named Clark Mills to cast that sculpture in bronze so it could go on top of the Capitol building. And Clark Mills had uh, a workshop for casting sculptures where he employed some freemen, but also where uh, a man named Thomas Reed worked. And Reed was enslaved by Mills, had been owned by him since he was a young boy, and had become one of the most important parts of his uh, working foundry. And I tried to find as much as I could about the life of Reed, about what his work would have been, uh, about how he would have contributed to making this sculpture of freedom. Uh, he spent more than a year every day uh, controlling very low, very mild fires underneath the drying um, bits of mold. So they had to take the plaster statue, impress it into uh, a mixture of sand and loam uh, to make a mold in which the metal would be poured. But first that mold had to dry out very, very carefully. Uh, and Reed was in charge of making sure that that drying out happened. Uh, he was paid $1.25 a day by the federal government, but he got to keep only the money he made when he worked on Sundays. The rest went to his owner, Mills. And what I found especially interesting and poignant in this story of a black man forced to make a sculpture representing freedom that he did not have uh, was finding in newspapers uh, an announcement of that another woman enslaved by Mills had run away, had been captured almost to the boundary of the free state of Pennsylvania, and had been returned to him just a few years before Mills and Reed started working on freedom. So Mills would have been working on this sculpture, working on a representation of freedom while living with someone who had, who had tried to obtain her freedom and had failed, had been recaptured. Uh, we don't know her fate, but by the time the sculpture went up in 1863, Reed had been freed by the District of Columbia Emancipation Act. Uh, he collected about $40 from the federal government for working on those Sundays on freedom. He got married, and then he lived the rest of his life as a plasterer and was buried within sight of the Capitol building. Uh, and this type of hidden history is really what I wanted the book to reveal, to make us think, is it right to have a sculpture supposedly representing freedom when it's actually a very white version of what freedom is, about who deserves freedom? 
We have a video about 10, 12 years ago, C-SPAN did a special feature video on the history of the Capitol. And this is a less than a minute clip of two Capitol historians uh, talking about the Statue of Freedom and uh, its origins and what it means. December 2nd, 1863 would be be one of the two or three greatest days in the history of the building. The day that the head and shoulders of Crawford's Statue of Freedom were mounted into place on top of the, of the dome of the United States Capitol. The most interesting part of my research thus far has been uh, the Statue of Freedom, which was cast in bronze by an enslaved laborer named Philip Reed. I think this is interesting because it's so ironic that this Statue of Freedom was cast by an enslaved person who was free by the time she was raised atop the Capitol because emancipation came to Washington uh, on April 16, 1862. Aaron Thompson, do we know uh, from documents how Philip Reed felt about his contributions to American society? We don't, uh, and that's the difficult part of writing these histories, that if people have been silenced in the historical record, you can interpret whatever you want uh, back onto their lives, or you have to be very careful not to, to do so. Uh, but I found when writing the book that this type of speaking for someone is still happening. So. Mike Forcha, the indigenous activist I interviewed uh, about why he took down the Statue of Columbus, there had been so much reporting on that action, but n hardly anyone had bothered to ask him why he did it. Uh, and these debates about monuments, I find, often go that way, that people assume that they know what other people want from monuments. Uh, but in reality, if you look a little closer, you'll see there are all sorts of, of really strange uh, motivations and histories uh, that can be even entertaining, uh, but certainly enlightening. The statue went up specifically under the orders of President Lincoln uh, because it, the work had stopped on the Capitol. Uh, do we know, did he ever speak about the statue in particular and what he thought of it? I don't think so, uh, or at least I don't know. Um, Lincoln, of course, is also uh, become a controversial figure in monuments in the last couple of years. Uh, so there have been protests about some Lincoln monuments. Some of them, these protests are because of actions of Lincoln himself um, in, for example, approving the execution uh, of uh, indigenous people in the aftermath of the U.S.-Dakota War. And sometimes they are because memorials to Lincoln often include a, f a representation of emancipation that can be, as I was talking about earlier, more or less insulting in, in saying that emancipation was given as a gift by, um, by Lincoln rather than fought for by um, the, the people who, who wanted freedom. So the Lincoln, the, what's known as the Freedmen's Memorial in a statue in Washington, D.C., has become very controversial. A copy of it that was in Boston has been removed into storage uh, because it shows 
Lincoln handing a scroll to symbolize emancipation to a kneeling black man who ha- is wearing chains. The chains are broken, but he's in this very passive, stooping, powerless posture, just sort of looking around himself like he's confused. Uh, even Frederick Douglass, who spoke at the unveiling of this statue, uh, commented and wrote about how it looked like um, the the man was an animal rather than than a human, like he was still enslaved, uh, like he had nothing to do with with freedom. Uh, and what's ironic about this statue is that the, the the it's actually a portrait. The face of the kneeling man is modeled after a photograph of a man named Archer Alexander, uh, who uh, was uh, known to the the patron of the statue, the man who was organizing the the commission, and Alexander uh, escaped from his owner in the Midwest uh, during the Civil War, uh, made it to a free state, and then was kidnapped by people who wanted to resell him into slavery, and he escaped from them again. Uh, so the irony of someone who freed himself from slavery not once but twice uh, being used as a portrait to represent this uh, very powerless-looking man um, seems to escape, have escaped the, the sculptor and the, the commissioners of this monument, but definitely has not escaped notice today. We are at the halfway point in our conversation. I, I want to spend just a couple of minutes, because we've got lots to cover, on uh, someone that you introduced readers to named Horatio Greenow. And you call him the father of our monuments. And the important thing about him is uh, he's an example of public art that has earlier created controversy at the Capitol and was subsequently removed. What's important to know about Greenow? Horatio Greenow was the first American to be commissioned to create public art for the Capitol. Before him, it had been usually Italian artists um, called in to, to come and uh, make art that Americans were not yet expert in. Uh, but although Greeno was the first to make a national monument, a portrait statue of uh, George Washington, he was also the first to see that monument removed. It spent only two years in the Capitol Rotunda before senators more or less kicked it out because they did not like how it represented Washington. Uh, so Greenow decided to show Washington in a neoclassical style. He was commissioned in the, the mid-1830s to make this monument. Uh, and his Washington, you can still see the statue in the Smithsonian Museum of American History today, uh, shows Washington in a toga, sitting on a Roman throne. Uh, he's nude from the waist up, um, and he's handing over his sheathed sword uh, to the next president uh, is, a, is implied. Um, and he's raising another, his other hand to heaven to show, as the sculptor said, the link between um, the favor of God and Washington himself. And it's a very strange looking statue to us today, or really even to, to people at the time, because the head was based on a portrait carved um, during Washington's lifetime. So it's of an older Washington with wrinkles and and sort of jowls, but then a few inches down, he morphs into a superhero. He's got pecs, he's got a six-pack, he's got muscled biceps, um, because Greenow was attempting to show the perfection of Washington, to represent Washington as a perfect leader uh, who had the favor of the heavens and, of course, a perfect body to symbolize this favor. Uh, And he got made fun of a lot for this sculpture, 
There were debates on the floor of Congress with congressmen saying that it looked like Washington had just stepped out of a bathtub or even worse, that the, it looked like he was sitting on an unmentionable throne in an outhouse. Uh, and really, if you read between the lines, you see that what they were objecting to was the idea that Washington was a heaven-blessed, perfect leader. Because how could you aspire to become the next president if you didn't have the favor of God versus the election, the votes of the American people? Uh, so that statue was uh, removed, was placed outside the Capitol building for a while and then um, into a museum. Uh, but that removal was was peaceful, almost went without any comment. And this is the main difference between controversies about monuments today versus the monuments that have come down previously, is that if people in power want to see these monuments gone, that's a pretty easy process. If you don't have the political capital um, to get a monument officially removed, uh, it's going to be messier. Perhaps the longest chapter in your book is devoted to a sculptor by the name of Gutzon Borglum. And as you note at the end, if that name is familiar to people at all, it's associated with Mount Rushmore, which, which he carved. Uh, but your telling of the story is about an earlier work at Stone Mountain, Georgia. What did you learn about the creation of the, the monument at Stone Mountain? Stone Mountain is the world's largest Confederate monument. Uh, it's uh, the world's largest piece of relief carving. It's a... Uh, portraits of Jefferson Davis, uh, Stonewall Jackson, and Robert E. Lee riding horses across a cliff on a mountain just a few miles outside Atlanta, Georgia. And this project began in 1914 when a Confederate widow decided her one last monument she wanted to put up was a portrait of Robert E. Lee on this cliffside. And she hired Gutzon Borglum, uh, who was a strange choice uh, because he was living in Connecticut. He was the son of um, Danish immigrants. He had made his fame as a sculptor, sculpting portraits of Lincoln uh, and a Union general the, for the Sheridan Monument, which still stands in D.C. Uh, he was really gunning for getting commissioned to do the Lincoln Memorial. He even named his son Lincoln, Lincoln Borglum, to try and Curry favored. That didn't work out. So he was broke and uh, in debt and wondering what he was going to do next when he gets out of the blue of his call from Georgia saying, why don't you come down and look at our monument or at our mountain? So he comes down. He says, this is a perfect mountain. Uh, it, it's made of granite. Uh, the granite had been quarried for years um, it's in the Panama Canal. It's in a lot of American courthouses. It's in Fort Knox. Uh, and so he, he said it, it'll be a piece of cake to carve this. But the only problem is you're thinking too small. It shouldn't just be a bust of Lee. It should be, and he proposed and sketched out uh, about 700 figures, each of them at least 35 feet tall, that would just cover the mountain, all the branches of the Confederate army, um, lots of officers from every state. He wanted it to be a grand monument to the South, a shrine for the South, as he put it. Uh, why did he want this? Not, again, not so much because he was a, a proud Southern um, uh, heritage advocate. It was because he negotiated a contract where he would get a percentage of the, the um, total cost of the monument as his fee. So the more figures he could carve, the, the more money he could collect.
the only problem then, once he signed the contract, is that he didn't actually know how to carve the mountain. Nobody had carved figures that big in a mountainside, especially not um, that many feet off the ground. They, they begin many hundred feet up in the air. Uh, he eventually figured it out after a lot of trial and error. It went pretty slowly, uh, so slowly that he had spent about, uh, he had collected about 90% of his fee for carving 5% of just the central group. Um, and uh, he was fired in 1925 by the organizing committee because they said not only is he going slowly, but he's asking for more funds. We think he's trying to embezzle donations for this project. Um, the thing is, they were they were probably right, but the, their motivations were more that they wanted to do the embezzling uh, instead of having to split it with Borglum. Uh, the organizing committee uh, launched a huge fundraising um, uh, campaign collected over a million dollars, but only succeeded in getting another head of Lee carved on the mountain uh, with the rest of the money disappearing mostly into their own pockets. Uh, And in the process of replacing Borglum's carving, they they actually blew his head of Lee off of the mountain. Uh, So many people today are saying that this monument should be taken down, but how can you, you take down a granite carving? Well, you can do exactly what they did in 1925 and, and use some dynamite. Uh, the real objections to this monument are that it has been over its history so intimately associated with uh, really malevolent forces. So in 1915, the same year that Borglum was hired to carve the front of the mountain, um, the Ku Klux Klan was reborn in a ceremony on top of the mountain. Uh, The same people were involved in the the Confederate Memorial Project and in the Reborn Klan. And Borglum himself fairly soon afterwards joined the Klan uh, and had uh, a real role to play in trying to bring the Klan into national politics. Uh, Because of all the controversies about embezzling donations, the Monuments Project at Stone Mountain was paused for a number of decades. Nothing really happened until Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. Georgia's new governor uh, erected after federal mandates to uh, integrate school systems, pledged a massive resistance campaign and put the Confederate flag onto the Georgia state flag to symbolize this and also bought Stone Mountain to make into a state park and to finish the monument, as he said himself, as a rallying point um, for for those people who wanted to uphold the ideals of the Confederacy. And uh, Klansmen continued to burn crosses on top of Stone Mountain into the 70s, um, when Georgia finally prohibited them from using the state park. They just sort of moved downhill onto land uh, privately owned uh, on the, the lower slopes of the mountain and continued to do it there later. The Klan was reborn yet again in 1963 in another ceremony on Stone Mountain. Um, so I, I 
really want us to wonder how often does a site need to be used as a means of encouraging these really hateful and divisive ideologies before we say, you know what, this isn't working out. Let, let's try again. Let's put something else up on the mountain. Just a quick question. You, you report, and this is probably pre-pandemic, that it's still Georgia's number one tourist destination. How does the state of Georgia deal with its complicated history now? Um, there is some movement at Stone Mountain, but it's complicated. Uh, it is, uh, it, it's not that millions of people are coming a year to look at the monument. They're coming for the golf course, for the boating. It's a recreational park. But all of this recreation happens when you're driving along roads named after Confederate generals, when you're looking at this giant um, Confederate monument. Uh, in 2002, Georgia removed the image of the Confederate battle flag from the state flag, but there was a legislative compromise which said, all right, we're taking this off the flag, but Stone Mountain is going to stay as it is without any removal, without any possibility of modification or addition. Um, so Stone Mountain has really been... Um, kept into place legislatively. Uh, there's limitations as to what any uh, body can do about the monument unless they can convince the entire legislature to change the law. Uh, I will note that there are encouraging signs. So um, the Stone Mountain Memorial Association, which is in charge of the park and the monument, uh, just last year elected their first black leader um, when their first leaders of the association had been Klansmen. This is quite the change, um, but uh, what he can do is still relatively tied. Uh, I think what is going to change about Stone Mountain is going to be economic pressure. So the park is already having difficulty finding vendors who are willing to um, put their products into, who are willing to run concessions at a park that um, celebrates one history without uh, acknowledging the complications of that history. So I think there is a possibility for change, whether it's dramatic or whether it's more in, along the lines of, of adding signage and uh, encouraging people to, to think about the wider history rather than just this narrow slice. A couple times you've mentioned Mike Forsha and the Columbus statue in front of the Minnesota State Capitol. Here is a, a local NBC News affiliate, KARE, story about the June 10th, 2020 toppling of that statue. In Boston, protesters beheaded the Christopher Columbus statue. In Virginia, they threw it in the water. These images caught the attention of Native American groups in Minnesota who have petitioned for years to take down a 1930s-era Columbus statue here. I spoke with one of my elders this morning and he said, can't do it that way. Can't be passive anymore. You have to go down there. You got to take it down. Mike Forsha of the American Indian movement Twin Cities claims he bought a rope and let others do the heavy lifting. The act of toppling the statue is a violation of the law. After we were done, I was told that, I, yes, I will be arrested. I will be charged with criminal damage to property. But that's part of what happens, so I'm willing to take that. Aaron Thompson, Thompson what happened to Mike Forsha and what happened to the statue? So he was charged with, as he said, a felony for criminal damage to property. 
but his lawyer managed to persuade prosecutors to use uh, an alternate form of restorative justice. So instead of having a trial, uh, they had what are known as talking circles, where they convene volunteers from concerned communities, um, from people who uh, considered the statue to honor Italian-American heritage, to people who considered it to be a harmful reminder of genocide. Uh, and they talked about the damage done to the community by the toppling and also the damage done to the community by the statue itself. And they came to a consensus um, that Forcha should um, be not criminally charged, especially considering what um, he, he said, uh, uh, what the anchor said in the clip, that there was no peaceful way of removing this statue, that he had exhausted all of means to even get the question heard. Uh, so f the prosecutors ultimately recommended to the judge who accepted the recommendation that Forcha complete 100 hours of community service and the charges be dropped. And that community service would take the form of educating people about the harms done by the statue. Um, the fate of the statue itself is still up in the air. It's still in storage. There are Minnesota legislators who have said that they want to return it to its pedestal. There are others who say they want to put it on display um, in its damaged state as a way of educating people about the history of Minnesota. Um, we don't know, and that's really the fate of hundreds of monuments currently today. We're just not sure what to do with them. You made the point earlier that you think that we're at a pretty crucial moment, a bit of a tipping point in discussion about public art, um, and that for the first time ever in 2020, a majority of Americans agreed that controversial statues should be removed. Of course, the devil's in the details. Who makes that decision and, and what happens to things is what it's all about. So how are states and communities responding to this moment in time? Well, it's interesting because you hear the phrase public art, but it's somewhat of a misnomer because the majority of monuments up in our public spaces were put there by a very small group of people, people wealthy enough to pay for a monument, powerful enough to ensure it a place in public, without any sort of consultation with communities. And uh, the, the majority of decisions about removal are still being made by small groups of people. So we really need to have some better way of talking as communities about monuments not only what monuments should go, but what new monuments should go up. Uh, because I'm not going to say, you know, here's a list of, of acceptable people to honor with monuments. No, that, those decisions should be made by communities. But again, still too often it's someone in power dropping in, a, you know, here's your statue of whomever, um, without really having a consultation. Well, has this caused a public discussion on on what public art should look like? You mentioned uh, the first statue, new statue going up in Central Park in New York, uh, honoring women, and that that it evolved as a result of the current discussion. Can you tell me that story? Yes. So, uh, in twenty twenty August, um, the a group uh, called Monumental Women put a statue in Central Park because their goal was to break the bronze ceiling and have a statue honoring real historical women in the park versus Alice in Wonderland and Juliet and et cetera. So 
there had been no statues of any woman who had actually lived uh, in Central Park. So they raised funds to um, honor some women and decided for the first uh, candidates for this honor would be um, women who had fought for, for women's rights. Uh, the first version of the statue that they proposed honored uh, only um, uh, two white suffragists, and there was criticism that this um, did not fully capture the, the real range of, of people who had fought for women's rights. So they responded to this criticism by adding a statue of Sojourner Truth. So now it's three suffragists. Um, sitting around a table debating. Um, there still has been a lot of uh, argument among historians and feminist scholars about whether this is too calm and placid a, a depiction of the women's rights movement. Uh, I think, for example, that it sh seems to show all the problems of women's rights as being over. The, the women are sitting there fairly unconcerned, uh, whereas um, the, these problems still continue today. I don't need to be reassured by a monument. I'd rather be fired up by one. Uh, but it, it is a demonstration that a, voices heard in public can have a difference, can make a difference of, of what type of sculpture goes up. So I would really encourage everyone to make their opinions heard about these sculptures because really for too long. It's been a very limited set of people who have um, made their opinions known, and I think our public art could be much more interesting, much more inspiring, much more like America if, if more Americans made their opinions known. You say in the wake of this, a number of states, particularly in the South, strengthened their laws about protection of public monuments, except Virginia. What direction did Virginia go in? Uh, so Virginia had been uh, a state that had a long-standing law protecting monuments from uh, removal, not just by you know individual actors acting criminally, but by local authorities were not allowed to um, modify or remove monuments once they were established. Uh, you have to understand this seems like a, a neutral law, but these laws in Virginia and other southern states um, were enacted around the time when Confederate monuments began to be questioned, and that in most communities, a Confederate monument or Civil War monument is the monument in the community. So these are very targeted laws. Uh, after the uh, Charlottesville, uh, Virginia began to question whether their monuments to Lee and Jackson in the historic center were appropriate for the community and had voted to move them to a less prominent place. There was a lawsuit to defend them, to keep them in place, and there was the 2017 Unite the Right rally uh, in support of keeping those monuments there. And so the law began to be debated about whether it was appropriate to more or less nail monuments in place, even when despite their, the wishes of the community. So the legislature eventually moved to change the law so that now in Virginia, local community officials can make decisions about monuments. It's not to say they can do whatever they want. You know, the mayor can't just shuffle around um, 
monuments in the city without any consultation. There's a there's a process. There has to be a democratic discussion. Um, but there is a possibility of democratic discussion instead of something being removed from the sphere of debate. Yeah, and recently, uh, and your book was in in the printing process and publication process, but for the state capitol has removed some of the Confederate War memorials in Richmond. So that process is underway in communities in Virginia. So we've got four or five minutes left. So let's use that to kind of wrap this discussion up. What do you hope will happen as a result of this book and the conversations that you're engendering around it? I hope people will be surprised and confused when reading the book, uh, surprised out of their certainties um, to come together and have a real conversation instead of thinking that they know what the history of American monuments is or what the future should be. I hope people really take uh, second or third looks at monuments, including monuments in their own community, right? I obviously couldn't write about every monument in America, but I think that people should dig into the history of monuments that they see every day and see, is that something they want representing their community or not? Is there a central location developed where, uh, as people research the history of their monuments, all of this is being gathered so it's easy to find out? Now, that would be a really good idea. Uh, I think Wikipedia is the best answer so far that I've seen. Looking up individual statues. So what, what, mm-hmm. is, what is your thoughts about your own role going forward? Um, we'll see. I think I have acted as a, a legal consultant to certain cases, just what is possible in your state or, or what is not. Um, but... I am just interest, as interested in it as anybody else in seeing how all of this unfolds, what new stories we're writing for the monuments whose origin stories I told in the book. Erin Thompson is our guest. As we said at the outset, she is a professor of art crime, the only one in the United States and also a lawyer and uh, has been working on this topic for a while and has a new book called Smashing Statues, The Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments. Thank you so much for spending an hour with C-SPAN. appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.